We're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination, and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by SAGE, energizing business builders around the world through the imagination of our people and the power of technology. I'm Ron Baker, along with my good friend, Verisage Institute colleague and co-host, Ed Kless. And today, Ed, we are honored we are going to interview Dan Bennett, who is the Senior Behavioral Strategist at Ogilvy Change. I know. I'm very excited about this. I've been watching some of uh, Dan's work on, on YouTube, and I, I am I'm thrilled. This is going to be a fun show. It's going to fly by. We always say that, but this one's really going to fly by. It, it will. So, Dan, welcome to the Soul of Enterprise. Hello. Yeah, this is great. Thank you. for. I just want to read a little bit from your bio off of LinkedIn. You say, I'm a practitioner, speaker, and writer on the application of behavioral science to marketing. You're the world's first choice architect until proven otherwise. I love that. I got to ask you about that. Joining Ogilvy Change in 2012, working on over 50 of the world's major brands, and your proudest your proudest achievements have been delivering behavioral interventions that deliver millions of pounds of revenue for some of the world's leading brands. You also have won quite a range of awards uh, from the Creative Circle, Cannes Lion, to the Nudge Awards. Uh, so this is great. Uh, behavioral economics right up our alley. So how, how'd you get here, Dan? Why the interest in psychology and behavioral economics? It's a good question. I mean, originally, um, I uh, left my psychology degree and was looking at all the options. And you, you kind of have occupational psychology, you have clinical psychology, all quite serious, heavy professions. And then I was lucky enough to watch um, one of Rory Sutherland's TED Talks. I highly recommend them. I know he's been on the show um, before. It was a great podcast. And um, he essentially inspired me to let, look at that you can actually use psychology, social psychology, cognitive psychology, behavioral economics within business. And um, he was setting up Ogilvy Change at the time, which is Ogilvy's behavioral science um, department, if you like. And um, I was lucky enough to be the first psychologist working in there. And then ever since, um, we've been, like, like you explained, working on many different brands, organizations from the army to for, soon to be Formula One, um, factories um, to make people more safe and um, lots of other different behaviors. So I've been lucky enough to work across all those pieces, um, which means have a very broad um, understanding of behavior change. Excellent. So prior to, prior to watching that TED Talk, what was your educational background in? Was it psychology? Yeah, so I did a straight psychology degree at the University of York, and afterwards I joined a research group, which was looking into some interesting questions around things like um, why it's annoying to overhear a mobile phone conversation rather than a face-to-face -face conversation. And however interesting that was, um, a couple of months in, it, it became quite clear that academia was quite slow um, and, um, and can take a long time to get um, things off the ground. And, um, and then I found out about Ogilvy Change, and in my first week at Ogilvy Change, I achieved uh, an experiment where we had four different um, letters going out to over 100,000 real customers and had the results back within three days. And I think Ogilvy thought that was slow at the time. I'd just come from academia and realized we couldn't have achieved that in about three years. So, so yeah, the excitement of going from doing a psychology degree to actually making things happen within the week was a bit too much. It's the ultimate laboratory, isn't it? You guys probably get to do a lot of A-B experiments and other types of experiments. Yeah, it is. It's, um, I mean, some, some um, environments more than others. So we discovered we could do behavioral science quite well in call centers. And call centers are the most amazing area to test out interventions on people. So um, because, you know, you have 100 different agents all trying to do the same thing, persuade people to stay or to join a product. And you can give them all different training because they're all in separate groups. So um, very similar to lab rats, you can train them in different interventions, you know, give each, each group of people a different um, behavioral science principle. So we'd train one group up in social norms.
norms. The idea that we like to do what people like ourselves do. So we'd say things like, um, for people in your situation, this is the most popular product. Or you'd even use the, the idea about asymmetric relative framing or you'd do um, uh, the, the middle option bias where you'd say, you know, there's these three options here, option A for this amount, option B for this amount, or option C for this amount. And more than likely, people tend to go for the middle option. And you can test all of those different things out. And then at the end of the week, you can find out who sold the most and basically do some real experiments kind of live in the world. So I think wherever you are at the moment right now, um, you may be being nudged and measured and you may be giving your learnings back to the academic profession of behavioral science. Right. I remember during <clears throat> Rory's tenure of the IPA, the uh, Institute of Practitioners and Advertising there in the UK, he said that if ad agencies don't become behavioral economists, they're going to become irrelevant. Would you agree with that? It's an interesting, um, I, I would agree. I think um, the challenge that we're in is that the world changes so quickly and it's quite hard to change a whole industry with it. At the heart of that, I'd agree with Tim Williams' arguments around pricing. If we don't have things such as, you know, before you know, media was separated from creative, um, it was very easy to get, you know, money in the building because um, that's the expensive part. Um, the challenges that we have now is that when you go to an hourly-based model, that doesn't always reflect the value. So unless looking at um, deeper ways of making money beyond the spheres we already do, um, then it becomes quite difficult. There's a really good slide that we have, which is there's a really big circle on the slide, and that says all the things that creative people and strategic people, all the problems that they can solve. And then within that, there's a really small circle, and that's an arrow point to that. And it says these are all the questions um, that we're asked to solve. And essentially what we're saying is you can use creativity, um, you can use strategic thinking, you can use behavioral science on top of that to kind of supercharge it to solve many different problems. So some of the problems that we've been solving lately have been how might we get people to wash their hands um, in a food processing plant when they go in and when they leave or how might we increase safety behaviors and it's not, I think it's not very often an ad agency gets asked those types of questions but it is the types of skills that, that we can answer. So by going back up to laddering up to the principles that actually change people's behavior and a very pure and academic level, you can then dive back down into many different industries and, and use those powers for many other, other things. Yeah, no, that's such a good point because I remember Roy talking about this in several talks that I saw him do and, and even like some of his zeitgeist talk, which I love, uh, which I think was at Google. Uh, he talked about how, uh, I don't know if it was Ogilvy who did this, but somebody or maybe the nudge unit in the UK, but taking the uh, yellow lines out of the middle of the highway around coastal roads so people would yeah. slow down and there'd be less fatality. I mean, it, it's those types of insights. And, and what's amazing about that, Dan, is those insights can happen, you know, in, in a second or, you know, an epiphany, a blinding flash of the obvious. It, you'd be crazy to charge that by the hour. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are some hours that it shouldn't be charged for, really. Should it? Five o'clock on a Friday should be a lot cheaper than <laughs> 10 o'clock on a Monday. <laughs> So I'm just curious, at, at the, uh, you, you gave an IPA talk in 2016. At the end of that, you gave a list of books, and I've seen Rory give some of those books as well. And I'm just interested in what schools of economics have influenced you. Is it Like Rory, he says you know, Ludwig von Mises is his hero. Has, have yeah. the Austrians had a big impact on your thinking around behavioral psychology? Yeah, I think within marketing in particular, it kind of already starts to make those distinctions between kind of, you know, transactional value and, and, and all the rest. I think the, the piece that really influenced me uh, more than anything, that really boiled it down to choices, and it does seem to be the thing that people can really latch on to um, straight away when it realize it influences their behavior, which is um, Professor Brian Wansink at the Cornell um, Food and Brands Lab. Now, he's done some amazing work, which I'm sure people have vaguely familiar with, um, such as, you know, the size of your plate that you eat off dictates the amount of food that you eat. So, you know, plates that are two inches larger will have 17% more food put on them and then people will be more likely to finish that amount because of the optical illusion of not only is there a bigger plate to put plate on, but um, the same amount of food looks smaller on a larger plate and it looks bigger on a, on a smaller plate perceptually. You know, right. we have a horizontal vertical bias um, where we naturally think it's crazy, but when you see the illusions, you fully believe it, that the horizontal lines look 
um, uh, shorter when they're, when they're horizontal rather than when they're on the side and they're vertical. So if you want a, you know, even free-pouring bartenders many years into their jobs will actually pour more into a short fat glass because they're still underestimating the width of the glass that compared to tall thin glasses. And it was those types of interventions, um, you know, the similar one with an, with an ice cream cabinet, an ice cream freezer, you know, even the presence of a, a see-through glass lid that you had to pull across was enough to reduce the amount of ice cream that was bought by 8% compared to an open um, open uh, freezer cabinet and to me that was unbelievable that, and especially in marketing when you realise you can spend all the money you like on advertising you can create so much desire but unless you've really solved that what you might call the last mile problem it's, it's not going to work as hard as it should do so I think you know refer to Rory again um, if you start with the coupon at the end um, then any work you do in, in terms of increasing motivation is going to work a lot harder we re- recently had a brief uh, re- for recycling getting more people to recycle in London and there was lots of conversations about how we might make it more people more motivated to want to recycle you know do you pay them do you give them a group goal do you tell them how brilliant it is that people in their area are doing it all those things could work but fundamentally unless they have the right set of bins in their house unless they have a landfill bin and a recycling bin separate, um, then they can't do anything else. So we actually focus the campaign towards getting people to have the right, what psychologists would call, facilitating conditions for them to do the work. So I think the, bi- the biggest influence to me has been Brian Wansink, just because he really made it very concrete about, about how really subtle shifts in the environment can, can shape our behaviours. Yeah, as you say, small ideas can have can have enormous effects, and that that is so true. I, I'm going to ask you a question that we got to ask Dan Ariely when we interviewed him, and it's it's a linguistic question, but I think it's important. Ludwig von Mises was very deliberate in using the term human action because he believed that all act, you know, all human action was purposeful. We act with a goal in mind, and this this term behavioral behavioral economics always kind of bothers me because animals behave, my dog behaves, but humans act. Do you have any qualms about the, the terms for this discipline or should we just get over this? <laughs> I, I think we are um, what um, Gerald Ashley would uh, describe as a mess um, when it comes to the language of behavioral science. But, um, and, and I think it's an in, in interesting debate. But at the end of the day, you know, I mean, whether it's called behavioral economics or behavioral science or psychology, for me, is, is more of a marketing branding job to be done rather than ma- making sure that it works perfectly. If I say psychology in a meeting to a new client, fear will come over their face and um, they will feel like it's um, some kind of manipulative device to get people to do things, where it is just another form of persuasion um, because psychology has so many implicit connotations with um, subliminal advertising with um, kind of mind mind washing you know in the UK we have the magician Darren Brown who does a lot of mind reading techniques and it feels like more in that kind of space whereas what we're really right. talking about is making sure that we design a kitchen correctly to make people make the right choices um, so it's far from it so the big rebranding job that was made from turning psychology into behavioral economics slash behavioral science I fully welcomed and, um, and for me it's not really when you said get over it I I smirked myself because that's that's kind of what I really think, really. It's more about just getting the right branding to make sure that we're showing the discipline in its best light than it is about feeling around, you know, um, the comparison between animals and humans and and those types of things. I like the behavioral science, the term behavioral science, because behavioral economics, been true to itself, would be more more in the mathematical space. With the behavioral science, you can usually um, talk about a wide enough set of disciplines to answer any kind of question that we might be seeking. Evolutionary psychology, I think, and biology plays a big role in making sure that we get human decision-making correct, for example, and that wouldn't fit very well under behavioral science. So the one that's the biggest umbrella, I feel, is the, the one that excites me the most. Right. And, and like you said in your talk, this is nothing new for ad agencies. I mean, I, rem- I don't remember the guy's name, but he was famous. But he was the one that came up with the idea that you should have to crack the egg in the, you know, the Duncan Hines cake mix. And it, it, he actually had all these really, uh, you know, esoteric reasons why it was a sign of fertility. But you were also engaged in the process and therefore you owned it more. I guess it's like the endowment yeah. effect or the Ikea effect or whatever. So, uh, Dan, this is great, but we're up against our first break. And, folks, we'd like to remind you, you can contact Ed or myself. 
at asktsoe at verisage.com. We will post full show notes with our interview with Dan at thesoulofenterprise.com and link to his IPA talk. And now we want to hear from our sponsor, Leading Results. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Is your website just a brochure or is it your best salesperson? If your site is not the best lead generation tool you have, we should talk. We are leading results. We build websites and marketing programs that impact your bottom line. Using HubSpot or WordPress, we'll create a website and supporting marketing program that gets your business found, converts web visitors to leads, and provides clear tracking on what is and is not working. Learn about our team and approach to your success. Visit leadingresults.com slash TSOE to find out more. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. And we are back here on the Soul of Enterprise with the first ever choice architect, Dan Bennett. And I will let Ron ask you that question, Dan. But I, I wanted to talk a, a little bit about uh, the talk that you did for for IPA and unpack a couple things. The, the, the one, and I just want to make sure that I have this clear, you, you talked about how 95% of our decisions are made by the, the Homer Simpson area of the brain, right? The, 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 uh, the, the yeah. cerebellum, right? Our primitive brain. And then 5% are, are made by the, the – and by the way, it, this little tip, it's Mr. Spock. I'm sure you got that, not Captain Spock. Uh, there, there are Star Trek people who are very sensitive about that. Not me, but I I'm just, they, they come to me all the time. <laughs> like, okay, cool. Um, but anyway, th- that, that uh, 5% are done by the, the Spock portion of the brain, and the Spock uh, uh, issues the post-rationalizations for this. But – I, I think I heard you said something that was slightly different from that, and I want to make sure that I, I heard it correctly. And that is, it's not 95% of the decisions here and 5% here. It's 95% of the decision. So it's of like an individual decision. So regardless of what the decision is being made, there's always an element of the, the Homer piece in there. Is that correct? Yes, we tend to, I mean, it's very easy when we're, when we're reading these boxes, like Thinking Fast and Slow and Dan Ariely's box, and to really start to think about there are some decisions which you do without thinking in your unconscious brain and some that you do um, with, um, with your conscious brain. And it's a question that comes up quite a lot with clients, actually. Clients that are, you know, business to business, they think, well, we're communicating to really, really clever people who are thinking very logically about spending logical money. And, um, and so they go, well, actually, you know, all of our decisions are going to be Mr. Spock, not Captain Spock decisions and um and uh, it turns out that you know every single decision that you make is going to be a combination of both the subconscious um uh figurations of the brain and and the conscious ones and whereas usually clients go you know if it's business to consumer if we're speaking to normal everyday people then you know we're going to have a bigger balance of automatic decisions and it's just simply the case that we have both Uh, the, the biggest um or the best uh, diagram I think we have of this is looking at, it's more about, not in a Freudian way, but thinking about, if you think about a big iceberg, 95% of the iceberg is actually below in the water and only about 5% of it is above ground. Um, and that might, 5% might be where we think we make the decisions, but actually a lot of it's made deep down. So if you think about, um, you know, when you choose your life partner, not many people are listing out the attributes that um, they are seeking in that partner, and then they'll go on several dates, and they will 
um, score those partners on all those attributes and then figure out which one they want. Similar when you go into buy a house, you're not looking at um, looking, you know, we like all these things about these houses. What actually happens is you kind of like house number three and then you go back and post-rationalize that spreadsheet into the form that you want so your actual Mr. Spock brain is happy with the decision that the Homer Simpson brain makes. You know, that wouldn't be the case. There wouldn't be experiments such as, you know, houses that have a certain... Um, carpet when you walk in or carpet smell or, or houses that smell of freshly baked cookies actually in, leading to the increased desire of you wanting to have that house if we were that rash about decisions. So it is a big thing. It is, I mean, it, nobody really knows about the, the, the pure distinctions between the two, but every decision you make is an interaction between, between both parts of the brain. And one of the things that, that has always challenged my thinking on this, and I think Dan Ariely does talk a little bit about this and perhaps Kahneman, but at, at what point are we crossing over from, let's call it nudging, to manipulation? And is, it, do you, and are you concerned with that when you, you do your work? It's like, hey, there's a difference here between nudging people to the, quote, correct choice, and I'm just using that as a shorthand, to I, 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 I'm really pushing people and manipulating them in some way. Yeah, it's a really good question, and I think um, it's one way you have, there is a big responsibility to make sure that everybody practices persuasion um, ethically and is doing the right thing and is working on brands that they believe in and aren't going to cause um, due harm without any, um, with, with any overconsumption. So but I, do, I do sit in the same lines as, um, as persuasion in general rather than there being much different about the, using behavioral science to persuade people. All we're really doing with behavioral science, I think, is kind of codifying, having a set of principles, universal fundamental human principles that we can understand better how we are changing someone's behavior. So whether we're pulling the social norms lever or whether we're pulling the loss aversion lever or whether we're pulling a scarcity lever. All we're really doing with behavioral science is giving ourselves a common language for all of the persuasion industry, if you like, to understand why it's working, that we can deploy it in a different way. It's really, I feel, it's like um, a hammer. You know, a hammer is a powerful thing, and it can do very good things like build a house, and it can do very bad things um, like kill a man. Um, So it's really about, it it is a tool, and you just have to make sure that you're working on brands and products that you believe in and are not designing things in a way that's more of a shove than a nudge. Sure, sure. Um, and, and I want to ask you about some practical applications of this. One of the, one of the things I, I'm curious, if you've done any research on charm pricing or 99 pricing a, a, at all, and whether <clears throat> is that still something that, that we should pay attention to? I, one of, uh, let me give you an example. I noticed that Apple uh, is, a, is a, a brand that, that uses 99 pricing, right? The latest version of the iPhone is 899 or whatever. However, they did make a shift in their Apple Watch, their high-end Apple Watch, is seventeen thousand dollars, not sixteen nine ninety nine, right? And I'm wondering if has there have you done or have you heard of any research with re- regard to, to charm pricing? It's a really interesting area, and um, if if I think if anybody has an answer, I think we'd all love to hear it. And I think it's because it's one of these <laughs> things where there are so, um, and it'll be making them a lot of money. It's, um, <laughs> apparently, you probably know this, but the reason why they started doing 99 pence um, pricing in a retail many, many years ago was simply so there was actually a transaction that required the till to the cashier to open the till um, yep. to, or the, the checkout. So the reason why 99 pence came in is you would hand over a pound coin and someone would have to open the till and not put that pound coin in their pocket and pretend the transaction ever happened, <laughs> but they would have to put the pound coin in the till and give you a penny back. And actually, that was that was much more of a profitable thing to do than it was than to have the amount of um, uh, product that was stolen from the store as a result of it being part of the cashier's job. So I think that that's kind of where it started. And um, when when a couple of years ago, we actually did a big piece with our academic panel. So we reached out to UCL, we reached out to um, Edinburgh, we reached out to lots of different academic partners and we, uh, with kind of business professors. And we said to them, you know, we're looking into this piece about pricing this product. It was a newspaper product. And whether it should be a, a round pound price or whether it should have the, the, the 99 um, pence um, hook as a part of it. And they basically said, after the years of research we've all done on this, we can't come to a consensus between us. And really, the only way you're going to find out the answer is to test each product individually. So whether Apple there are looking at 
simply doing live testing in the market um, or whether they have some insight. It's, it's hard to know. But I would suspect that um, there are different prices and different techniques that will work for different products and for different people. So we have the uh, in the pound store, for example, the reason why round pound pricing could work really well in that store is that actually um, if you are if you have a very tight budget about how much you want to spend and you want to be in control of that spending, you can go into the pound shop with a £10 note and you can know you can buy 10 things and not overspend. If you go into a store where I know some stores even have like I mean, a 67 pence or £2.21, it's very hard to keep a track of what you're spending and, and feeling controlled. So people often think the round pound pricing is the premium one, the two zeros, and they think the 99 pence is the cheap one. But actually, the research we've been finding in the examples actually can be totally flipped. So it's, it's seems so bespoke that the, I don't think we'll ever get to a one or the other answer. <laughs> As I've made the great mystery of pricing right there. Um, the, the other one I want to ask you about, and I and I actually did some research on this myself. Uh, in, in the States here anyway, Starbucks um, introduced a new drink about 18 months ago called the Flat White, which I believe was imported from Australia. They're much better in Australia, by the way. And uh, <laughs> but, but one of the very bizarre things that they did is that if you go to the Starbucks, they only have the tall price on the menu. There isn't a price for grande or venti. You can order them because I've tried and they will make you the drink and they will charge you like the same price as the normal upcharge. But on the menu itself, there's no price for those two. Uh, And first of all, I'm going to ask you before I tell you what answer I got from Starbucks because I did inquire as to why you think that might be. Uh, presumably it's an opt-in versus an opt-out situation so the default suggestion that you have is the one that most people will go with and then you can opt in by knowing about it and going in and presumably with a with an opt um, opt-out pricing it's a much more you get a lot more people doing the one that's on the menu i suspect Hmm, interesting. Well, I, 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 I actually asked several baristas, one of whom finally took it back to the district manager. The district manager got in contact with me and said that they would call Starbucks corporate. And about two weeks later, I get a phone call and they said that the response was, sorry, we can't answer that question. It's proprietary marketing information. <laughs> <laughs> I hope I haven't just let the cat out of the bag on that one then. <laughs> but, well, m- maybe. And I, you know, and I, I don't, I don't rightly know why. And curious by the way, it's the lowest price, right? So it's not the higher price one, it's the lowest price mm-hmm. one. The other explanation that I've heard is that the drink it only tastes correctly or the, it tastes best at the tall price. Can't, can't say on that one way or the other. Anyway, anyway th- thanks for your answer on that. This, this, this is great. And uh, we're up against our next break, though. I want to remind you, you can get a hold of Ron or myself by sending an email to ask. T-S-O-E at Verisage.com. The website is thesoulofenterprise.com. The the show notes for this show and other shows will be up on the site. The shortcut URL to this show will be thesoulofenterprise.com slash Bennett. And that's Dan's last name. So right now, a word from our sponsor. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-294. 6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. 
Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417. Or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. All right. Well, welcome back, everybody. We're here with Dan Bennett, the Senior Behavioral Strategist at Ogilvy Change. And Dan, I wanted to ask you a question. You talked in your IPA talk about, you know, people like to use heuristics just because it's it makes life, life functionable, right? We don't have to engage that, that system to brain. And I love the example you gave about when you walk into a restaurant, they ask you about water. And there's probably a right way to do this and a wrong way. Could you kind of explain that? Yeah, really interesting piece of psychology here that waiters are using probably without even knowing it, actually, which is um, it's all about placebo choice, really. So if you go into a restaurant and someone says to you, uh, would you like water, yes or no, if you've got two options there, yes, you can have the water or no, you can reject the water quite politely. If, some, if the waiter comes over to you and said, would you like still or sparkling, you've got two yes options there and you would have to opt into saying the no. And the biggest thing, you'd have to opt in saying tap water, which is the most embarrassing thing, but the thing that most of us actually want to do most of the time. Um, but by giving the two yes versions and having a silent no, you actually increase the amount of people that will, that will go with the water. Other things that can do that are the presence of the type of glass on the table. So restaurants that lay out wine glasses sell more wine, and restaurants that then um, lay out cocktail, empty cocktail glasses when you sit down at the table will sell more cocktails. The presence of the water glass will dictate whether you have water or not. Um, it's so really, really small things, even as going as far as to when, the, um, when the, the main meal is taking away, if you put a sugar pot on the table, you will then increase the likelihood of the amount of people that, when requested, um, order coffee. So really, really small placebo choice things at the dinner table are affecting our decision making without us knowing it. Right. You made me think of all the, you know, I've, I've read about uh, menu engineering, as it's called, uh, without, you know, posting prices without dollar signs and and not putting yeah. pictures of the food and, and, and playing classical music in the background makes people feel wealthier. So they spend more and <laughs> it, yeah. it just it is so right about these very small effects. But the, I, lo- I love that the placebo choice is great. There were some other examples and we talked about a couple of them, like taking the yellow lines off the, the highways around. Uh, coastal areas to reduce fatalities and and Rory gives the example I think uh, of the Ogilvy client who you know wanted to finish the antibiotic wanted people to finish the antibiotic so you you take the the 16 white pills first and then finish with the blue ones and and those types of insights um, are there other things without disclosing trade secrets obviously but are there other types of choice architecture that you've used like those examples that have had profound effects? There's some really interesting ones. The one that um, that is my, if a, I have a favorite principle that I can tell you about. My favorite principle would be known as the gold gradient effect. Um, so it's essentially the idea that if you have a loyalty card um, and you have 10 stamps to get the free, you know, to get the free coffee, if you like, people will, you know, saunter through and will eventually get to the 10 free coffees and they'll trade it in. If you give them a loyalty card, the same types of people, that, that same loyalty card, but instead it has 12 coffees to achieve, um, but you've given the first two for free and kind of given a head start, they're already pre-stamped, then twice as many people will achieve the end of the loyalty card, which is incredible because in both situations, you still only have to get 10 coffees to get, buy 10 coffees to get a free coffee, but in the second card, you just feel halfway there. And that's because the closer we think we are to our goal, the higher is our desire to achieve it. So if you put rats in a maze, 
they will run kind of slowly at the beginning, get the energy out of the way. But when they see the finish line, they will run like bilio to reach that finish line. So it's really all about those, those types of things there. And you can use that insight across a range of different things. So if you're looking at um, uh, online web journeys, the, sometimes the progress bar that you have, and we've done some of these tests before, um, where if you can artificially um, advance the progress bar, you can make people feel further into the journey and then be more likely to want to complete it. And sometimes, you know, when you have a really long, sloggy form to fill out, all you want is like a little bit of encouragement to get to the end. So by doing those types of things, you can make it easier for people to want to complete the end of a, a journey that they have to do. Right, right. I love that loyalty card example. That's so true. If they give you a head start, you're more likely to to want to go back. Um, let me ask you this. You talked about, obviously, we're big fans of offering three choices, and we know most people pick the middle. And if you get really sophisticated with this, you can kind of even nudge customers into the choice that, that you think is best for them, at least in professional services, you can do that. Um, what about four options? Uh, I know you can paralyze people with too many options, and I wouldn't want to go beyond four. But like I think about the American Express black card. Now, that's invitation only, so there's a scarcity element to it. But have you ever used four-option pricing? We've, we've looked into the, these types of um, four options before. And it all it tends to co- depend on the types of variables you have between the card to which one is the best. So very, very simple um, comparisons to make um, you can do with four choices, but often it's best to go with three if you've got variable, um, big, big variance between the project. So I'll explain what I mean. Um, so with, uh, we worked with the Times newspaper group. So they have uh, in the UK selling subscriptions. So they went from buying, as many newspapers have now, um, from buying daily to buying a subscription, which you would renew annually. And so you're kind of buying you know, years worth of papers at once, and then you, you consume them daily still. Um, so up front, you've now got a very different, what we might call choice architecture. Um, for, the, for that decision, you can do the, the web-only version, you can do the, the um, just the paper version, or you can do that, the family pack, which is, tends to be the, the web and the paper version. Um, now, the thing that we looked at within there was, um, can we, how do we make it easier for someone to go for one of those options? And the thing that really did it was minimizing the amount of variance between them. So it used to be the fact that the web option was seven days, the paper option was defaulted to five days, and then the family pack was the all-in full Monty pack of kind of web for seven days and paper for seven days. Now, because the amount of days changed um, between each pack as well, that's another level of complexity, so it makes it harder for someone to make the choice. So what we did was actually default everything to seven days. We actually gave people more, charged them even more for it, and more people actually were more likely to buy it. Um, so it depends on, it gets more complicated than just, you know, is three or four choices better? It's more about what's the mental cognitive load that someone needs to make that decision. So how many more things are they having to decide around? Do I need it for four days? Do I want it on my tablet? Do I want my phone? The more levels of complexity you have, the harder it is to offer choice sets. What people are really good at, and in fact, Nike are quite good at doing this in-store, is giving people really simple choice architecture. So people are really um, good. It's really hard, rather, to make a decision um, between a range of 57 different things. It's really easy to make a series of five um, questions with kind of binary answers, yes or no, yes or no. So if you walk into a Nike store in Oxford Street, you would see that if you looked at the wall, at the very top it would say men and women, so you would quite easily gravitate towards the men section. Then you would go, I think it goes by age next, then you gravitate towards your age, and then it has the ranges going vertically, I think the five ranges going vertically below. So rather than walk into a store with a massive train is not knowing what in the hell to do, they very simply guide you through very simple questions. It's called decision binarization. It's easier to make decisions, many decisions with fewer choices than it is to make one decision with many choices. So that's the kind of the complexity of the three versus the four choice. Right, right. And then, of course, you, I, I remember in Dan Ariely's book with the uh, subscription to The Economist, it's a fam- famous example, but they had that middle option, which was the print only. Uh, yeah. And then the, the top option was the print and the web. And, and, you know, that's called the decoy or dominated option. Do you see more use of that? Because we're, we're kind, we kind of track that and we're, we're seeing more and more of it where it just kind of makes it <clears throat> a no brainer to move up to the next level. 
Yeah, I think there, there is a lot of uses of the, of the decoy. And I think the, the place where behavioral science is at right now, and I think it's a really important point to make, which is we're in a place really where it, we're painting by numbers. So we're taking this principle, we're taking this example, and we're applying it to lots of different fields. And the challenge with that is we're already seeing data Real, real, real client data, which is showing that examples and nudges such as two flights left at this price is already less effective now than it was two years ago. And those kind of nudges haven't been around for eternity. So there are wear out effects. We're seeing the same execution of, of the nudge, of the same principle. So what we, we're really keen to be doing right now is to go, let's not just repeat the same execution in different spaces and different industries, although there's a lot of work to be done there, what we might call behaviorally tidying up the world, a lot of work to be done there. What the crucial part is, is to make sure we're using creative and lateral thinking on the principle rather than the execution to get new, new versions because the executions of the nudges will wear out. You know, eight out of 10 people love this car is going to wear out the more people that use it. But the principle of social norms, we like to do what people like ourselves do or we like to do what we think is popular is, is, is an ever, ever evolved tendency within us which will always work. We've just got to find new ways of activating that principle within people. Right, right. Good point. And, and, you know, on that social norms in your IP talk, you talked about five behavioral economics principles uh, in, in the a- advertising agency pricing world. And, you know, Ed and I spend most of our time helping firms move away from the billable hour and the timesheet, as does Tim Williams. And I, I know a big part of your, your interest lies in, in barriers to people changing, right? What are the barriers and the yeah. decision making and the psychological drivers? When we've talked to Rory about this, we know it's very hard to change these big firms, but what are the behaviors to implementing value pricing, say, in Ogilvy? The, it's an interesting question. The biggest barrier, I would say, is that um, people are risk-averse. So you, if you look at the principles, such as the ostrich effect, which is whenever we see risk with financial decisions, we tend to bury our heads in the ground. It's always hardest to be the first. So within Ogilvy and kind of across the industry, um, it is it is difficult to be the first person to um, implement value-based pricing because there's a chance that it will go wrong and you will look bad for making that decision personally. There's a threat to your career as a part of doing that and you're, you're um, doing well within your organization. There's also a threat that compared to four other agencies, all with fixed fees versus or you know, hourly, hourly costed, um, you are going to be the more expensive one. I think also, you know, people have fixed budgets on the client side, and it's quite a scary, scary thought to think that the, the, the cost of the project, if you like, is variable because of our mental accounting structures. We like things to be neat and tidy, done and dusted quite quickly. Um, I think that the real barrier to getting this done is that if we could say that December 2017, 31st, that we're all going to stop costing in the way that we are, and then January the 1st, um, we're all going to start this new way. It would be a very easy thing to do. Everybody would be doing it together, um, and you wouldn't also have that, that risk-based element of this too, which is one person's doing it by itself. From a social norms point of view, if everybody was doing it, it would be very easy to do it, essentially, from my point of view. Right. That social norms thing uh, is really interesting because there's an enormous dichotomy in there. On the one hand, we don't like to be the first at anything. On the other hand, we preach that we're innovative and creative. Well, you can't be innovative yeah. if you're not willing to do something the first for the first time. Yeah, <laughs> well, yeah, 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 yeah. Dan, this is fantastic. I know Ed will probably continue on this theme in our last segment, but we're up against our uh, third break here. And we'd like to remind you folks, if you want to contact Ed or myself, send us an email at ask. TSOE at Verisage.com. And now we want to hear from our sponsor, Sage. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Wherever your business is headed, Sage has the cloud solution you need to enable mobile accounting and simplify financial management. Discover how moving your financial data and accounting processes to the cloud can transform your business. Cloud accounting software from Sage can help you make better decisions, drive faster responses, and gain greater control. That's cloud accounting for the journey. 
For more information, visit sage.com forward slash US forward slash SOE. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. The business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. And we are back on The Soul of Enterprise with Dan Bennett. Dan, thanks for much, so much for being on. If we don't get a chance to say thank you at the end, which we often do because we have so much we want to get in. So I uh, <laughs> want to just say thanks for being a guest on the show. Uh, oh, my pleasure. It's been great. Yeah. P- picking up on, on the theme of, of value-based pricing, one of one of the things that you talk about is the, the, the Cyper-Whorf hypothesis. Am I saying that right? A Cepher or a Cyper, is it? I'm not sure anybody uh, knows, but I'm going to go with oh, okay. that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad I'm not the only one. And one of the things you did in the talk is that you asked for people to to tweet to the, the Twitter handle a na- different names for value-based pricing because you thought that perhaps this might be one of the reasons why people got stuck. D- do you recall any of the names that people shared with you at the time? If I'm honest, I'm not sure I do. I'm, I actually remember there wasn't a lot coming through, and it made me realize that it's a, a lot bigger job than kind of sitting there in the audience. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, well, anyway, uh, you know, I, let me let me run uh, two by you, and one is actually the title of, of one of Ron's books, which is uh, Pricing on Purpose. And then the other one would be pricing with purpose. I actually tend to like the latter more, pricing with purpose. And and again, this would be the name that we would use internally at the firm. One of I, I've had a, a number of conversations with people that have made this shift. And my suggestion to them on talking to customers is just call it a price. Don't overthink it. Just call it a price. Yeah. Yeah, we're trying to ban the what we might call the C word of cost as much as we possibly can. I think on the back of your advice, actually, or in Tim's advice, um, pricing with purpose seems to be a lovely one because people, the human brain is very, very sensitive to sniffing out people's intentions behind their actions as well as just their actions. So we're always trying to seek out why someone's done something or why something offers of something rather than what they've just offered. That's often what the brain is busy doing whenever it sees a choice. Um, and it's quite an interesting one. Pricing with purpose for me shows that we're really aligned to kind of caring about getting the best outcome. You really make the conversation about the outcome rather than the inputs. You know, and I actually think we're doing some value-based pricing with our clients right now um, with, with some airports on some interventions. And you try so much harder when you know that, that the, oh, you're both of your um, goals are aligned. And it was just it's an amazing revelation to me that when you're actually doing these types of projects, the, the, the psychology of it is, is so very different. So pricing with purpose to me really feels like a strong one because it shows there's like an emotional alignment with making success on the outcome rather than just like a, a logical look on the income. It feels to me more Homer Simpson friendly, if you like. <laughs> yeah, I, I think so too. And I, I really do like the, the, the with exactly for what you just said. And that is, hey, there is an, there is an intent behind this. And one of the things I learned from a, a guy by the name of Mahan Khalsa, I don't know if you've studied his, his work um, it, mostly on the sales side, but he says is people are going to assign you an intent whether you want them to or not. Right. Yeah. And then he's, so they're, they're going to have an intention. So you might as well just state what your intent is. Right. Yeah. Uh, anyway, I want to get back to a, a, a practical nation. Again, I'm pick, picking your brain on some some really cool stuff here. I, you you alluded to this a little bit earlier in your conversation with Ron, and and I honestly think that one of one of the the great innovations that's that's come out of the the digital marketing space is the notion of of massive A/B testing. 
right? And how, how we can get the message to the right person so quickly. But one thing that, that confounds perhaps a lot of the people in our audience, which tend to be smaller businesses, is what what's the smallest valid sample size? Can you do A-B a, testing if you're sending out an email to 50 people, 500 people? Does it have to be 5,000 people? It, it, does there seem to be a, a, a cutoff point where it, it, it makes sense? It's a good question. Um, I, I think it's certainly more than 50. Um, it depends on the differences in the interventions you're trying. It depends on the variance of the data. So if you're trying one word different to another on, a, on an email of 400 words, the first thing I'd say is don't have an email with 400 words from a cognitive overload capacity. But the second thing would be um, that, that smaller changes tend to need bigger sample sizes. And also response rates with more variance in them, as I said, tend, tend to need bigger sample sizes. There is actually a really good website, which I'll make sure I send to you so it can go in the show notes, hopefully, which is a samples, online sample size calculator. And it's not perfect, but it's certainly a good steer when you're trying to do something quickly in a business. Fantastic. Yeah, I think that'd be great that we would both I would like to see that and I'm sure many folks in our audience will too. Uh, let me let me bring it now. I, yeah, I, I figured I might as well take an advantage of having a, a psychologist on the on the show and get some free psychology advice here. And that is I often have and I think that the older I get, the more this happens to me. Uh, I have an idea in my head that is in my head crystal clear. But I'm, but it's becoming harder and harder for me over time to articulate it to other people. Is that just my brain getting old? Perhaps. I mean, there's so many variants in there. It's hard to say. Um, I, w- I would say that that one of the best techniques for getting over that is actually through the power of images. So if I, if you. In my head, I could say the word um, light bulb, and um, it could be totally different to you when the image that you have in your head when you say the word light bulb. So the biggest technique we're um, looking at with an Ogilvy is kind of what we might call visual planning. So if we're trying to understand the brand now, what we don't do is use words, because words mean so many different things to so many different people. What we do do is sit around with, say, 40 different relevant magazines, pulling out pages of things that feel uh, relevant to us for that brand or for that concept and then we'll stick them all up on the wall. So you can communicate with people much quicker. It's a system one to system one communication tool is to use images than it is to use words because, like you say, words can mean so many different things to different people and it can be really hard to articulate them as well. I think also uh, later on in the day I tend to get quite tired and it's quite difficult to articulate myself. Um, So maybe it's a bit of that as well. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I was just talking to my wife about this last night. Uh, I'm starting to find that that after about two o'clock, it, I'm, it, no matter what time I start in the morning, I'm I'm done. Like I should stop, just stop working because it's not it's not helpful. <laughs> Anyway, uh, well, Dan, this has been absolutely fantastic. We we love having you on on the show, and and uh, it, it, we really appreciate you sharing your insights and knowledge and wisdom uh, with with the Soul of Enterprise audience. So thanks so much. My pleasure. Yes, thank you, Dan. That's great. So, Ed, uh, what's up next week? Next week, Ron, we have another interview show. We have Maget Wade, who is one of the folks who was featured in the film Poverty Incorporated, talking about how we uh, – poverty and how we can overcome it in in the, the, the world. Oh, fantastic. I look forward to it. I'll see you in 167 hours. This has been the Soul of Enterprise, business and the knowledge economy, sponsored by Sage, energizing business builders around the world through the imagination of our people and the power of technology. Join us next week, folks, on Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern. In the meantime, check out our show notes at thesoulofenterprise.com. We'll post our full interview with uh, Dan. And in the meantime, you can contact Ed or myself at asktsoe at barrisage.com. Thanks for listening, folks. Have a great weekend. 